0: There are many issues that plague youth. The church acts as a safe haven. It provides a place where youth can come together to hear the word of God. Upper Room Media presents to you this youth talk delivered from Sydney, Australia. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we left yesterday's conversation specifically ending on the note of how it is that you and I have to come to terms with the fact that we're being called to relationship. That we're being called to something much greater than simply this ritualistic dynamic of us going through the cycles and emotions of repetitive prayers, repetitive rituals, repetitive rites. And that at the end of the day, there is a God who is waiting for us to be able to know Him personally. To experience Him and to know Him, not at the level of head knowledge, but rather experientially. We're called to intimacy. To a real and deep loving relationship with a real person. And we ended specifically with the quote from St. Cyril of Jerusalem that reminded us that you can't possibly take a look at the mountain of your sins and your brokenness and think to yourself somehow that there is no hope for you. I need to be really clear on this. Unfortunately, our culture as a people, as a people, not as a faith-based community, but as a people from the Middle East, as Egyptians for the most of us, we're a very guilt-driven culture, right? To be a good Egyptian mother, what do you have to do to raise your children? You guilt them to the max, right? And, and like, and everything, like, I remember even growing up in my home and my father, the way he made me do anything, it's, did I still kill me? you want to kill me? You, you want to give me diabetes? I give you sukkah. Yeah, I mean, everything is like, why do you hate me, is what my father is saying, right? And while we joke around about this, you and I both know that this is the culture that most of us have grown up in, right? And, and so naturally, you grow up with this reality where everything is about guilt tripping yourself, only focusing on your flaws and how it is that you can please the other. But let me also be clear, while the world is out there talking to you about me, talking about this whole idea of you do you, we celebrate you, good for you, you're a queen, you're a this, you're a that, right? <laughs> While the world is out there saying this, they're also saying, if you don't fall in line and do what we do, we'll cancel you. And if you don't meet our standards, then this whole idea of freedom of choice and freedom of speech and freedom of everything, that doesn't apply to you because we don't want you. And so now you feel this pressure of, again, making sure that you fit into a mold. The reason I'm bringing this up to you is because if we're going to talk about God's desire for us, There has to be this healthy understanding of how it is God loves you entirely for who you are, for who you are. But your identity has nothing to do with your sin. And the world today would convince you and me that your identity is found in your sin. That your identity is found in the behaviors and the choices that you make. But this is simply not true you have to come to the realization that while you might fall a million times, you do not in any way lose value in the eyes of your Creator. When we talk about a God who loves you unconditionally, you need to come to terms with what it means to say that there are no conditions. I grew up in Sunday school classes with my Sunday school servants. It's not like you're doing anything intentionally to be theologically incorrect. But we would grow up in this reality where people would say, Hey, Habibi, Don't upset Jesus. Don't upset God. Do you want God to be mad at you? Think about this for just a second. If this language is taken seriously by little kids, what are we implying? We're implying that there is something that you can do, right? That makes God loves you a little more. And there is something that you can do that makes God love you a little less. This is the definition of condition. If you do this, I will do that. That's the definition of condition. And yet, the church is out there preaching that God loves you unconditionally. You can't do anything to make yourself less lovable. And you can't do anything to make yourself more lovable. His love for you is constant. And it is freely given to you. You cannot earn it. And you have no idea how many people are bothered by this. Bothered by this in the sense where, no, I want to feel like I earned it. You can't. You can't. Because if you earn it, it's not love. It's transactional. Now He owes it to you. It's not given to you. It's no longer grace. Rather, it's something that you've purchased. And the love that God wants to give to you and me has nothing to do with the amount of sin that you've accumulated. Now, what should be our natural reaction to this? Should it be the reaction of many people who are like, well, excellent. If it's unconditional, then I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live the life that I want to live. And then in the end, He's going to give me what I want regardless. Well, this is not reciprocity, is it? Now, this is not me returning love for love. This is me saying, well, seeing as how I'm getting paid i am go ahead and do whatever I want to do regardless. If you're going to pay me for a full day's work, even if I work only 15 minutes, well, guess what? I'm going to choose the 15 minutes. But I just need you to imagine that that's the kind of relationship that you're in with a person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. Imagine if the person tells you, I thank you so much for the unconditional love that you gave me. I feel so supported by the unconditional love that you offer to me every single day. And because of this, there's going to be a few days in my life where I'm going to say, I don't know you, I don't care about you, I'm going to act as if you don't exist because regardless of what I do, you've already promised that you're going to love me forever. This is abusive. This is toxic. This is a reflection of not a love that is reciprocal, but rather a reflection of a person who simply wants to take advantage of another. The church is trying to tell you and me Recognize that He loves you unconditionally. And now interact with that love by showing love back. Not that you could ever offer anything in the same magnitude that He has offered to you. But once you receive that love, let it change you. Let it mold you. Let it make you stronger. Let it be a reflection of your real identity. And not what the world is trying to push on you. In that light, let's reread what St. Cyril says. God is loving to man and loving in no small measure. For say not, I have committed fornication and adultery. I have done dreadful things. And not once only, but often. Will he forgive? Will he grant pardon? Hear what the psalmist says. How great is the multitude of your goodness, O Lord. Your accumulated offenses surpass not the multitude of God's mercies. Your wounds surpass not the great physician's skill. Only give yourself up in faith. Tell the physician your ailment. Say thou also, like David, I said, I will confess me my sin unto the Lord, and the same shall be done in your case, which he says immediately, and you forgive the wickedness of my heart. You have no idea how many people, just like you and me, are plagued with the idea of hopelessness and despair because we can't seem to break free from sin. And many of us struggle with particular sins or categories of sins. Where if we're being honest with ourselves, we would confess the fact that there's an addiction there. That there's a cycle that I can't break free from. Where there has to be some form of spiritual rehabilitation. And because I think my role is to go back to Abuna and sit down and not confess that sin again, I fall into despair and cycles of shame and cycles of guilt over the fact that I'm constantly confessing and falling into the same things over and over again. My question to you is the following. I want you to picture a little child who's learning to walk. Have you ever seen little toddlers when they first begin to walk? They're super wobbly. They can't stand straight. They fall all the time. Like these kids are built tough. Like these, the way that they're manufactured by God is incredible. <laughs> because these kids will take tumbles and falls and like they keep getting up. right? But I want you to imagine a mother who, out of sheer concern and love for her child, right? And she sees that the kid is trying and trying, and it's been weeks. And every time he takes a couple of steps, he falls, he face plants, he like does this and that. Like she's so terrified for her child getting hurt. It's just, Habibi, it's okay. It's okay. You clearly suck at walking. So why don't we just crawl? You're a good crawler. You're great at that. You're super quick. You know how to get around. That's all you need to do. It's okay. You fall way too often. Stay down. Is that love? Yes. Where? Who said yes? Tell me why. Because that's how you're going to teach your kids how to walk, or that's teach them how to, like, basically like how to So you're saying it's love if we continue to push the child to learn. Okay, perfect. Then we're in agreement. I was afraid for a split (laughs) second. I thought you were saying, it's loving to tell the child, don't walk. Only crawl. Right? But you're absolutely right. Real love is one that pushes the child to be able to get through the struggle. To get to the point where even if you fall, what's the problem? Falling is a natural process of you struggling. God is more interested in your struggle. Much more interested in your struggle. Than he is in you getting anything easily. Let me be clear on this. Anything that is worth having is hard and difficult to achieve. Your repentance, your purity, your life of holiness, your pursuit of righteousness, it's 100% normal that it's difficult. And don't ever forget that it's not because you're doing this and you suck and you're not good at this and that. Don't ever forget that there's spiritual warfare. Don't forget that we have an enemy whose intention is to trip you up. But you also have a God who desires you so deeply. And who loves you so passionately that he is not going to leave you in this state. Remember yesterday how we spoke about he was sitting in the garden and praying and talking to his good father. Before he was betrayed and crucified. I didn't read to you this passage in that same chapter verses 24 to 26. Pay attention to the words for just a second. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The love with which you loved me. The infinite, most powerful form of love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is the same expression and magnitude of love that He wants you and me to recognize that this is what He's offering us. And yet somehow... We continue to live our lives as if our sin dictates how lovable we are. However, you're, you're, you're greatly mistaken in thinking that your sin can somehow alter your identity. I remember when I was in college, it was like 20 years ago. What's the name of uh, the... Um, oh my goodness. The two princes in, in, in London. One of them married that girl from Suits. Harry, Harry. <laughs> Harry. Sorry? Harry. 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 Harry's the younger one, right? Yeah. Harry's the one who married the... Harry. Her. Okay. <laughs> when I was in college, he, he was also going into university, and then it, was, like, it blew up all over the tabloids. He traveled to Vegas. Him and a bunch of buddies. And they had a crazy night out, and they were staying on like this really like, penthouse suite, because he's obviously like filthy rich. And his buddy thought it would be hilarious to be able to lock him out of the room and push him outside. And he's literally out there in his birthday suit. He's butt naked. Okay? And the tabloid showed up and they took pictures and it was a huge disgrace. And the prince and the this and the that and the look and what he's doing and it's shameful and I don't know what. Right? And he's royalty. Whether he likes it or not, he's royalty. He belongs to the royal family. So fast forward a few days and next thing you know, there was a press conference in London when he gets back home. And now he's dressed in this like $42,000 suit and he's sitting down at this table and there's a press conference and he's all like "Herman proper and he's talking about how it is. I recognize that my behavior does not match what I would like to portray and I recognize that I have dishonored the family and I apologize to both my family as well as to the people of England and this and that. Why is he doing that? Do you think by messing up and being caught in this shameful situation, that this somehow stripped him of his royalty? You think he becomes less of a royal because he made a stupid choice? If you think that that's not the case when it comes to Harry, then why do you think somehow, or why are you convinced so easily that your sin somehow strips you of the title of being the child of God, the beloved. His bride. Why do you believe that you're any less the temple of the Holy Spirit when you sin? Because the devil would have you believe that because the number one purpose behind spiritual warfare when it comes to spiritual addictions is despair. Because if he can convince you that your sin is greater than your God, then you will turn to worshipping the sin rather than turn to worshipping God. The sin will be what comforts you. The sin will be what gives you joy. The sin will be what satisfies you. Instead of turning to God for that love, that comfort, that peace, that satisfaction, you turn to the sin. If you give up on God, you give in to sin. You and I have to slowly come to realization that this cannot possibly be the cycles that we give into. We have to recognize just how loved. We are. Let me share with you something that St. Cyril of Alexandria says on this passage. Where Jesus is speaking to the Father and says, The love that we have between us is the love that I want them to be able to taste and to live in. Listen to what he says. He says, To live with Him and to be deemed worthy to see His glory belongs only to those who have been already united to the Father through Him and have obtained His love which He must be conceived to enjoy from the Father. For we are loved as sons. According as we are like Him who is actually by nature His Son. You know what the difference is between us being the children of God and Christ being the Son of God? He is Son by nature. Because they share the same essence. We are children of God by adoption. This is why baptism is you being adopted into the life of the Father. When we are adopted in baptism and become children of God, we become children by grace. Our sonship or daughtership is given to us as a gift. Not as something that is naturally yours, but offered to you. Whereas the son is naturally the son of the father. So what is he saying? Because you share in that sonship, in the same love that he gives to one, he gives to another. Imagine if a family... If a family was made up of both natural children and adopted children and the parents love their natural children more than the adopted children, what would you say about that? What kind of disgust would you have towards the parents of you should love them equally, regardless of whether they're adopted or not? Wouldn't we tell those parents the moment you chose to adopt that child and that child is now your child... You owe them unconditional love regardless of whether or not they are naturally yours. Wouldn't we say that? Well, we have this modeled in the Holy Trinity, in the God that you believe in. You might not be a son in essence like Jesus Christ is, but because you are found in Jesus and that now you are a child of God, God the Father loves you with the exact same amount of love. (laughs) I think... The same father who said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He looks at you and me and he says, I love you just as much as I love him. Do you have any idea how mind-blowing this is? That God loves us the same way that he loves his only begotten son. And yet we forget this so easily. Again, listen to how St. Cyril concludes this. He says, Christ desired that his followers might be granted in special the blessings of being with Him, and beholding His glory. For He says that He was loved even before the foundation of the world, hereby clearly showing how ancient was the great mystery of the redemption that He wrote for us. The same way that He was loved by the Father before the foundation of the world, that same amount of love and that same love was offered to you even before you were created. Because you were always in Him. And you think your addiction can somehow decrease that love. You think that your issue with anger, with pornography, with masturbation, with, with, with greed, with any form of sin, you think that sin is capable of making you less lovable. Believe it or not, that's not you being humble. That's you disrespecting God. That's like me thinking somehow. That when I jump into the ocean and I come out, right? Because of the water droplets that are on my body, I've somehow made the ocean decrease. Now you can argue scientifically that there's a little bit of truth in that. Right? You can argue that scientifically. But forgive me, you've got to be some form of idiot of actually thinking that you have somehow affected the ocean. You think that your sin is somehow it can affect God who is almighty, who is omnipotent. The creator of the universe is affected when you decide to turn your back on Him. When we talk in using English language or any form of language, to talk about God's anger towards evil, that God is saddened by our actions, that's just expressions that don't perfectly depict who God is. But we use that to be able to convey that God truly is heartbroken. Over the fact that he wants you to know that you are loved and you're not receiving his love. You see, God's not in heaven saying, I feel dishonored. You didn't love me back the way that you should love me. And so because you didn't love me, I'm going to throw you in hell. And just to be clear, there are some Christians who believe this. There are some people within the Christian communities who the way that they describe God is because you stepped on my toes and because you dishonored me, I will pour out my wrath on you eternally. You don't believe in a God, you believe in a monster. You don't believe in a God, you believe in a monster. When the church teaches us that God is angered by evil or saddened by your sin, this is the same level of sadness that is found in a parent who wants to love their child and their child is incapable of receiving that love. Not because there's some form of like You didn't love me back, so I'm going to beat you up. God is not some form of divine bully. But He is a loving Father who desires for you to know just how loved you are. Hence why He places this book in Scripture. Hence why He inserts it right in the middle and tells you and me, this is the kind of love I have for you. His song for you and me is to recognize that while we might be dark, we are also lovely. What do I mean by dark here? Before we turn this into some sort of like woke conversation, okay? <laughs> what do I mean by dark here? There are some people who, when they come to the realization of just how broken they are, they're tempted to give in to the level of that brokenness through despair. But the Lord looks at you and He says, regardless, regardless of what forms of brokenness are found in you, Regardless if you broke yourself or you were broken by your circumstances. And many of us are both, by the way. Many of us have contributed to our own brokenness because of the choices that we've made in our lives. And many of us are also broken by the circumstances that we grew up in. Whether it be our homes, our relationships, or any traumas that we've lived in our life. Many of us are broken. Actually, all of us are broken. Every single one of us. From the youngest child in the church all the way up to the patriarch of the church. All of us are broken, all of us need healing, all of us are called to a life of holiness, and all of us are loved. And the only thing that God could do to show you and me to what extent He desires to renew us, and show us how beloved we are, is to send His only begotten Son to die on the cross and to offer us salvation. But before He did that, He wrote about the love that He had for you and me. I'm going to read to you a few passages from Song of Songs, so you can understand to what extent His desire is to convey to you and me just how much we are desired, how much we are beloved. In chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, He writes and He says to His Shulah, my beloved, He says, Ah, you are beautiful, my love. Ah, you are beautiful. Your eyes are as doves, and you are beautiful, my beloved, truly lovely. He says in chapter 2, Arise, my love, my fair one. And come away with me. This romantic language. We were just having this conversation yesterday with a few of the youth. This romantic language is not one that is meant to be able to imply something that is sexual. But it is something that is meant to imply something that is extremely intimate. Something that is extremely powerful and transformative. The intention behind God's love for you and me is not simply. Like forgive me. I can stand up here as a priest in the Coptic Orthodox Church and tell you I love all of you. And that's not necessarily false. I do. But because I'm a human being, if you tell me, Abuna, do you love me as much as you love your daughter Maria? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love all of you, but no. <laughs> it's the honest to God truth. I think I'd be crazy if I told you I love you as much as I love my daughter Maria. I love her very differently than the way that I love you guys. The same way that I love Maria's mother very differently than the way I love her. It's expressed very differently. God is not like that. Where God transcends the limitations of human beings is that He can tell you, I love you, the same way He tells the Holy Spirit and His only begotten Son, I love you. And this is what's unfathomable. The purpose of this story and the book that we are about to gift to you as soon as you walk out of here. Have you seen The One I Love by Pope Shenouda and his meditations on Song of Songs? It's for you to come to realize just how powerful that intimacy and that love really is. In the book, he says, my beloved is mine and I am his. This is the Shulamite speaking of her beloved, the one that she's chasing after, the one that she cannot wait to finally be united to. She says, I am my beloved and he is mine. In chapter four, it says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse, you have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. You understand what it means, you have ravished my eyes? In Arabic, there's a saying, right? That when you want to tell someone, you're just not doing it for me, what do they say? Aslaho <laughs> mishmali aini. You understand what that means? Mishmali <laughs> aini, if it's translated, it sounds weird. It's, you, you have not filled my eyes, <laughs> right? It's, you, you basically, you don't meet up to my standards, but look at the difference between our cultural statements versus what it says here You have ravished my heart. With one look of your eyes, with one link of your neck, you have ravished my heart. Do you understand to what extent God not only hears your prayers, but He looks at you and says, I desire you above all? That His death on the cross. Was one that was personally offered to you? I know, I know we say it was offered for the life of the world, but Habaybi, that does not in any way, in any way diminish the fact that while he was on the cross, it was for you. Not you communally, you personally. This is why the church teaches you and me that when we come and pray and meet with him, yes, there is a communal aspect. We gather all together in the church for liturgical prayer. And the highest form of liturgical prayer and communion all together with God is the Eucharist. But that doesn't change the fact that you still have to go in that secret place by yourself and tell him, I want to be with you one-on-one. The same way that a couple who loves each other, yes, there are times where they want to be among their friends, and there are other times where they say, I want you all to myself. Well, God looks at you and he says, I want you all to myself. If you don't believe me, please look at the encounters of Christ. Christ. Look at how he goes to the Samaritan woman by herself. Look how he is willing to meet with an elder of the Sanhedrin called Nicodemus and meet with him by himself. How he is willing to look at a person like Matthew, the tax collector. Tell I want you to follow me. Look at how it is that Jesus is constantly telling you and me, it's for you. It's for you. And we forget this. We forget that it's personal, that it's real, that we really are those who ravish his heart. And it's insane to think that in your filth and in your sin and in your brokenness, you still have that effect on Him. And that if you repent or if you don't repent, and what I mean repent here is not the state of the heart. I'm talking about whether or not you stop the sin. Let me be clear. If until my very last breath I continue to struggle with my addiction... He loves me just as much had I been completely victorious for years. He cannot possibly love you less. When you begin to embrace this, it completely frees you. The liberty that it gives you, not a liberty to sin, but a liberty to accept the fact that this is my struggle. If I'm a person who is prone to a sin like gambling, to an addiction like alcoholism, If I'm a person who, because I was exposed to adulterous content and pornography from a very young age, and I continue to struggle with it even until my 30s or 40s. If I continuously struggle with it, but I know that I am loved regardless, how quickly will I get up? Versus how long will I stay down if I think there's no hope for me? The purpose of His love is to let you know, I am calling you to change. I'm calling you to repent. But I don't want you to ever think that somehow this will affect the way that I love you. St. Cyril says, truly, you inflamed us with desire for you by one word of confession, which you rightly possessed seeing with your interior eyes. The fact that God looks at us with this kind of love is exactly what makes people want to say, I want to love you back. And this is precisely why we do what we do. So we were talking to a group of people yesterday and the conversation naturally came up which is like, okay, but Abuna, like, it makes it sound as if like if I accept this level of love and there is nothing I can do to make him love me less, then why don't I just do what I want to do? Why don't I just go ahead and like live my life and in the last second I'm going to say, sorry Lord. Because we were talking about the righteous thief yesterday. And how it is the thief that was crucified next to him, in the very last moment, when he came to his senses, what does he say? Remember me, O Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord's answer to that is, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Right? Jesus didn't turn around and look at him and say, His response wasn't like, where have you been all your life? Now, oh, now you're dying. Now you're going to tell me you're sorry. Now suddenly remember me, oh Lord. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't his reaction. This isn't his reaction. And some people see this and they wonder to themselves, okay, but can that not almost invite the behavior of, I'm going to do what I want and then say sorry at the last second? Well, if you do that, you're the one who's missing out. (laughs) When I was younger... The, the typical answer you'd get from Abuna was, yes, Habibi, but uh, you might think that, but tomorrow, you can die. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So, like, you think you still have many years ahead of you, and then you'll say, sorry, but tomorrow, a truck can run over you. <laughs> so, something to be able to say, and that's true, that's true. But I actually think the bigger argument, the bigger argument... Once you've tasted this love, why would you want to live without it? Why would you not want to immediately begin to reciprocate that love knowing that it's going to transform you? Why continue to live with the swine and the pigs like the prodigal son knowing that your father has a room prepared for you? Why would you do that? You can, and he'll be waiting. You can. But why would you choose the pigs over your father's mansion? And you and I really need to come to the realization that there really is no difference between the situation of the prodigal son who was surrounded by swine and they were eating better than him. I act as if... No, let me be real. Many of us, many of us, we act as if somehow like... For me to love God, it's going to imply that there are conditions where I have to say no to a lot of things. Of course. Of course. What do you think happens in any real relationship? In any real relationship? When I decide, when I decide that this one woman is going to be my soulmate, my wife, the mother of my children, I'm also declaring That there's about three and a half billion other women that are not going to be that. Of course there is this idea of, if I choose you, then there's going to be a form of limitation. There's going to be an expression of how it is that I'm dedicated and consecrated to you and you only. And to suggest that I can have one foot in and one foot out, that my heart can desire Jesus and at the same time desire worldly success, that I can desire a life of righteousness and purity, but at the same time, I can go ahead and live according to the morality of the world. That's like me telling my wife, I love you. I'm going to be loyal to you, dedicated to you. But there's a few days out of the year where like, <laughs> How many, I would, I'm going to ask this question. How many of our women here today would be okay with the idea of their husbands telling them, 364 days of the year? Huh? <laughs> I am... Whatever you'd like. I am all yours. All yours and everything. will love you unconditionally. But one day, of the 365, which is like 0.3%, it's less than 0.3%. It's not... So I'm 99.7% of the time, I am like number one husband number one father but that one day no turn around like just look away just look away is 99.9 not enough and i've spoken to people where in confession they'll tell me this they're like why does why does god want all of me why is me not giving him like all of this enough I serve at church. I'm a deacon. I'm a this. I'm a that. I make phone calls. I donate. I tithe. I do all of these things. Why does he also want me to like be honest in my business? Now this is the way business works, Abuna. You can't succeed in business unless you do this or that, Abuna. Just this is the one area. And besides, when I do this, listen back to the audacity, huh? When I do this, I succeed. And when I succeed, I tithe. <laughs> I'm glad you're giggling. I'm glad you're giggling. Why does God want to stick His nose in everything? No, Habibi, it's not about God wanting to stick His nose in everything. It's you having to realize if you choose Him, then you must be His. The same way that when He chose you, He left His eternal glory. He took on what was not His by nature. He condescended and became a human being. He chose what was lesser. The King of Glory chose to be born surrounded by farm animals, in a barn, in Bethlehem, because He chose you. The King of Glory had to run to Egypt and flee because they were out to kill Him, even as an infant, because He chose you. The King of Glory suffered betrayal, even by His own loved ones, because He chose you. When he said yes to you, he took all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I'm sitting there talking about how, no, if I'm going to say yes to him, I want to be able to customize it. This isn't an Amazon order. You can't simply decide like, how you customize your relationship with him. If you say yes to him, you have to be willing to say yes to the good, the bad, and the ugly. In the book of Jeremiah, The prophet is trying to convey to the people of Israel. To what extent? God is not out to control them, but to love them, to protect them. When he says, I want to be your God, he's not desperate for worship. He's saying, I want to be in communion with you so that you can be saved. So how does he say this in the book of Jeremiah? Chapter 31. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying... And this is Jeremiah speaking to the people of Israel. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. With an everlasting love. And this is the people of Israel. Like I remember when I first, as a teenager, really started to get into the Bible, and I would read the Old Testament, I would like totally judge the people of Israel. (laughs) I look at the people of Israel and these are a bunch of idiots. (laughs) And how's this happening? Now you just saw the 10 plagues of Egypt and all of these crazy things going on and God is saving you and uh, like he's killing them and he's doing all of these things and the first thing you do when Moses goes up the mountain is you worship a golden calf? to are Right? I would immediately go into judgment mode. Like how? How can you walk through? Like the Red Sea parted, dude. Like you, <laughs> you walk through the Red Sea. And the first chance you get is complain to Moses and say, As the onions and the watermelons of Egypt were better, and you brought us out here to die. And <laughs> Now forget the people of Israel. I'm not any better. I'm not any better. Every Passion Week. Every Passion Week. Contrition. <laughs> spirituality. folk Matanyas and fasting. And tears. Oh, tears. Right? And then Good Friday comes along, and then Good Friday. Good Friday. It's like, my beloved is on the cross, and now it's like, I'm completely broken, and I'm in love with him. Today, Lord, I'm all yours. I'm changing never again. 48 hours later. (laughs) Mama brings out the fatah and the Ruz, and the kahk and the buftik, and it's done. I I don't know Jesus. I don't know Jesus. I don't know Jesus. Right? As soon as I... Give in to gluttony after 55 days of ascetic spiritual life. As soon as I give in to gluttony, as soon as I give a little bit to the flesh, what does the flesh say? Okay, I'm going to take this leash off of me and I'm going to place it on you. You try to put your flesh on a leash for 55 days. And the moment you give in to gluttony. I love this. And I'm, I'm making fun of myself, by the way. I'm not making fun of you. I, I, I fast from all media during Lent. So everything goes off, right? And I actually hate social media because 99% of the problems and the fires I try to put out are caused by a lot of these forms of media. Uh, but I'm on these platforms for a variety of different reasons and some of it is service. Or at least that's the excuse I give to myself, if I'm being very honest, okay? Okay. So during the 55 days, I fast. I get rid of the YouTube, the Instagram. I get rid of the Facebook. I get rid of all those things. And it's wonderful. For 55 days, I feel calmer. I'm less anxious. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm more focused. It's wonderful. Right? And then the day of the Feast of the Resurrection, as a good priest, I have to put some sort of post on Facebook to say, Christos Anesti. <laughs> right? And then it's over. It's over. I just spent the last 55 days recognizing that these are sources of sin. And the next day, I give in to it. Let me tell you... Interesting story. I used to work for a big telecom company before I became a priest, and one of my colleagues was this devout Lebanese Catholic guy. We were your good buddies, and he knew that I was a devout Orthodox Christian. And uh, he told me, "Hey, you guys do uh, you guys do Lent?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Oh, you do the forty days?" I'm like, "No, we're like we we have." A week of preparation, then a week to prepare for the week of preparation. So like this, like we do 55. He's like, oh, okay, all right. So he goes, you guys also do the whole, like, you pick one thing and you fast. it. I'm like, no, we pick one thing and only eat that. <laughs> we, we, we don't, we don't fast from one thing. We, we just, yeah. He goes, oh, that's cool. Like, are you, are you also giving something up specifically for, for Lent? I said, yeah. And I had told him that that year specifically, I was oriented towards giving something very specific up. He goes, oh, that's great. I'm actually going to give up beer. I said, really? It was, yeah, like, I, I have this routine every day after work. I go home, and I, I have a cold beer in my balcony. And then um, we have a meal together. And then before I go to bed, me and my wife, we sit outside in our garden, and I have another beer. And it's like, I'm like, okay, so it's not like you're getting pissed drunk. He's like, no, no, no. I, but I, every single day, I have to have my two beers. That's my thing. And I'm going to give it up for Lent. I'm like, good for you. That's awesome. Right? Easter comes along. And... Easter Monday we have off, he comes in on Tuesday, and this dude is he's like smashed. <laughs> he's, he's coming off of like, he's hung over. okay? And he's coming in to work. I'm like, what happened? He goes, oh my goodness. I go, what, 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 what? We had all the family over, we roasted this big lamb, we did this big thing, and me and my brothers, we just like, we killed a case of 40. I'm like, what? He was, yeah, we just killed it. We just, Pfft. I must have had like 18 beers. I'm like, what was the point? He goes, what do you mean? I gave it up for (laughs) Lent. It's funny how I can look at a story like that and say, you didn't benefit anything at all. What was the point of giving it up if you were just looking forward to indulging in it at the end? Right? And I look at him and I say, Eda. Ida. Right? Now compare that to my dilemma. What's the difference? I act all ascetic and spiritual and act like it's all for Jesus for 55 days. And then mama brings out the kak, and I forget that I'm a human being. <laughs> I act as if social media is sinful and it distracts me and it keeps me away from Christ for 55 days. And the moment, the moment, I reintroduce social media, I go back to spending a ridiculous amount of time just wasting my life away on it. There's no difference between me and Bashir. Bashir is the guy, the dude, the beer guy. Okay. There's no difference. And I can't sit there and look at Bashir and look down on him and say, (laughs) When I recognize it's the same thing that's happening in me. I cannot judge the people of Israel and look and say, look at what they did. They're so foolish. They're this, they're that. When in reality, they didn't even have the Holy Spirit and they were doing that. What's my excuse? What's my excuse? The Lord tells me, You are my beloved. I have loved you with an everlasting love. When I desire to be your God, it's not because I'm desperate for worship. But it's because I want to see you fully human. And you will be only fully human if you allow me to transform you. And show you what your real identity is. And this is where you see real transformational love. When people embrace God's love, they are completely transformed. Part of the priesthood that is a curse and a blessing is that you see people in their most vulnerable state. And I'm sure that Abuna can testify to this. We see people in their most vulnerable state. And you see situations that are completely heartbreaking. And you see other situations where God is working in the life of a person where you feel ashamed of even being called a priest because the person you're sitting next to has already surpassed your level of devotion and love to God in such a short period. I place in the front of you two case studies. St. Moses the Strong and St. Mary of Egypt. Both who are icons of what it means to be hopeful and what repentance can do. And how God's love can transform you and me. I need you to put yourself in the position where you were a monastic at the Baramos Monastery in Egypt When Saint Isidore walked in and said, Hey, we have a new recruit. So I need you to go back. Okay? 1,500 years. You're a monastic at that monastery. And the elder Hegemon, whose name is Isidore, walks in he says, We got a new guy who's going to be with us. And in walks Moses. By the way, Moses had a reputation across the entire wilderness of Shehid. Because him and his companions of hoodlums would raid monasteries. They would pillage villages. They would rape women. They would set people's houses on fire. This was very common. We know this from the life of Moses. And Isidore walks in and says what? He's gonna be with us now. I need you to imagine the reaction if that was like a modern day Coptic community. (laughs) The petitions, the phone calls and text messages to Abuna, Abuna, he's going to eat my kids. He's going to kill us all, right? Let him find Jesus somewhere else. (laughs) I joke. I joke, but many of you, I'm looking at your faces and you're not laughing because I think you get the point. <laughs> there would be no Moses the Strong, no icon of repentance, if there was no loving father, Saint Isidore. If it wasn't for Saint Isidore and Saint Macarius, who took his confessions, who saw his potential and let God's love transform him, we wouldn't have Saint Moses. We wouldn't have this icon this icon of repentance and hope. And the man who would pillage and murder and do all of these unrighteous acts became an Abba to a community of over 500 ascetics. And until today is celebrated as one of the most beautiful transformational stories of what God's love can do. And he was in community and celebrated as that. But I want to give you about a complete opposite example. Look at St. Mary of Egypt. You know what, one of the titles, if you read her doxology, the Coptic Church gives her a really beautiful title. Do you know what that is? The Bride of Christ. In her title, we give her the Bride of Christ. Saint Mary of Egypt was worse than a prostitute. Because prostitutes take money for allowing themselves to sleep around for their own survival. Mary of Egypt. Lived as a homeless person and didn't want the money. And she would just sleep around because she was completely given into the addiction of everything that had to do with her adulterous lifestyle. She she was the definition of a nymphomaniac. But a whole other level of like. You know how she got to Jerusalem? Does does everybody know her story? Can you just show of hands who knows the story? Okay, let me share her story real quick so that we can understand who we're talking about. Mary of Egypt is a young. Christian woman, who something happens in her teenage life and then she eventually decides I want nothing to do with my family and nothing to do with their values and she steps out and she begins to live in the streets. She falls into a wrong crowd and next thing you know she's completely overtaken by a life of adultery, completely overtaken by a life of adultery. And she lives on the streets, being passed down from one person to another and she's perfectly happy with that. And she wasn't doing it as a prostitute so she wasn't necessarily at a harlotry house, <laughs> She was literally just on the streets offering herself to whoever would have her. And then at some point, she shows up to an area where there is a large large port, where people travel back and forth, and there's a market usually at these ports. And she tells a whole bunch of sailors, where are you going? And they're like, oh, we're actually going to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. So she goes, oh, take me with you. They're like, oh, you wouldn't be able to afford the rate of being with us. And she's like, well, no problem. I'll just pay by you doing whatever you want to me. And the sailor said, done. Ironic, isn't it? They're going to celebrate the feast and they're willing to accept this form payment, whatever. Mm-hmm. She gets on the boat with them and she ends up going to the feast. When she comes to the church of the resurrection and she's about to enter into the church, she feels a force resisting her. Remember, she's raised in a Christian home, so she already knows all of this. She knows who God is. She just rejected it at a very young age. She feels a force restricting her and yet everyone else is walking in freely. And she goes on to describe how it is that she feels like literally she was being pushed back. She could not cross the doors of the church. And the typical tradition of the church at that time is that there there would always be icons even outside the church. Some churches still have that until today where there's not only a cross on the dome of the church, but there's icons on the outside, usually done in like uh, mosaic style icons, right? There's a beautiful icon of the Holy Theotokos, St. Mary, outside of the Church of the Resurrection. She ran and bowed in front of her, and she began pleading with her and telling her, you're a holy mother, and you're a mother to us all, and being his mother, you're also my mother, and I plead with you, intercede with your son. Tell him, if he lets me go in, I will change. Tell him, if he allows me to take the blessing." of the Feast, of the Holy Cross, then I promise to devote myself to Him. She accounts all of this story to Saint Zosima, who wrote it down. She goes back and she is allowed to enter into the church. That night she walks over and she crosses over into Palestine and she goes into the inner desert to a monastery that's right on the outskirts. She stays there, receives communion, says her confession, and the next day she goes into the desert. And nobody sees her for 47 years. For 47 years, nobody even knows that there is a woman living in the desert by herself. Until one day, during Lent, a monk by the name of Zosima, who was at that monastery that she communed and gave her confession at, he decides that he is going to spend the week right before Passion Week. In solitude as a hermit in the desert. And so he goes into the desert. And when he goes there. From a distance he sees what he thinks is a wild beast. He sees something moving and he's freaked out. He's freaked out. And he describes it as. This this creature that had very dark skin. A very thick thick layer of like. This thick leather on her. And he couldn't make out what kind of creature it was until the creature spoke out and said, O holy priest Zosima, throw me your cloak that I may cover myself so you don't see my nakedness. It was Mary of Egypt who had withered away because of the sun for 47 years. She survived living by herself ascetically between her and her bridegroom for 47 years. Zosima asks her for her story. She tells him half the story and says, Come back to me next year. Come back to me next year and bring me communion on Covenant Thursday, and I will tell you the remaining of my story. He says, How will I find you? And she says, I will find you. He goes back and celebrates only to come back with the Eucharist. And this is what you see here in the icon. Zuseima bringing her the Eucharist. When he comes back to her to give her the Eucharist, he can't find her. Only then to see her coming to him walking on water. So he freaks out and he falls to the ground, right? And she basically yells at him. She says, you're a priest, stand up. What are you doing? You're holding the body and blood off. He gives her communion, takes her confession. And she says, come back to me again next year and bring you communion. When he comes back, he finds her exactly where he left her. and She had reposed in the Lord. We know nothing about those 47 years of intimacy and aloneness between her and her beloved. Nothing. Nothing. When she received the love of God, it was enough for her to say, I want you and you only. I don't want to share you with anyone else. Unless you and me begin to believe that the love that He offers you and me is transformative, then we won't change. We won't. And you receiving it is not you trying to do something nice in order for you to feel like you can earn it. It's you recognizing to what extent you are loved despite and in spite of your brokenness. But your response to that love should be you saying, I want to be good for you. Not so that you can love me, but so I can show you just how much I love you. We know that in John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We forget very often what this means. That the Lord was willing to offer Himself for the life of the world. That in saying yes to us, it came at a great cost. And that cost is not something that should be ignored. Saint Cyril says, Great then and above nature is the love of the Father, who for the life of the world gave His own Son, and who is of Himself recognize to what extent God had to love humanity who had rejected Him. That despite the fact that we were still in our sin, He said, I will still choose you. There's this beautiful book that I recommend for everyone to read at least once. The book is called Elements. It's a fictional book that speaks specifically about the transformation of a young man who discovers the love of God. There's a passage that I want to read to you because I want you to recognize how it is that many of us think that if I start doing A, B, C, and D, somehow I will be more beloved in God's eyes. The young man is speaking to another Christian girl in this passage. And he is trying to ask her, what can I do to be better? It says the following, Elijah took the time to ask Esther many questions. What is the one thing you think I should improve on, he says. And she says, "Oh, Elijah, why do you ask me such questions? Behold, you are perfect, my love. And here she is quoting Song of Songs. She was quoting Song of Solomon again. And this is what happens to those who immerse themselves in Scripture. I'm serious, Esther. I want to know what would make me a better human being. Listen to her response, because this is the response of the Holy Spirit to every single one of us. Elijah, it isn't about being better. It's about being you. Who you are in heaven's eyes. That will only come when you descend, when you become a child and trust in your belovedness. And then you can begin to be human. Elijah, like an infant, completely dependent on their mother in the womb, so must we become with God. It is not about improving or getting better. It's about becoming human. It's about being. It's about earth. Esther's mind went to the etymology of the word humility. It comes from the word humilatus, which means from the earth. Humus the Latin word for earth. She knew that all Elijah needed was to become humble, to become like the ground, to become earth. Do you guys understand why the word earth in Latin is also the same word for humility? What is the earth constantly doing? It's constantly receiving. And when it receives, it offers. The earth is always ready to receive. It does not impose itself on anyone. The earth is even willing to be completely trodden down on, to be walked all over. And it's constantly in the mode where it receives, and when it does receive, it can offer back to those who gave. And hence why in Latin, they chose the word earth to reflect what it means to be humble. When you and I can reach a point where in humility, I am capable of saying, I am a sinner, I am broken, but I am also His. And because I am His, I am beloved. And if I recognize just how beloved I am, then maybe things can change. Then maybe things can change. I find it always so interesting when people say, Avuna, it's been a long time since my last confession, and you know it's been a really rough couple of like six, seven, eight months or whatever. And... um the reason it took so long is because I was really struggling. But you know, by the grace of God, you know, about six weeks ago, I stopped. And I thought this would be the perfect time to come and see you because, you know, I didn't want to just come to you and tell you I'm still struggling. I'm happy to come and tell you today it's been six weeks that I'm good. What are we, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Is Ibuna passing out ribbons? Are you going to get like a star in your notebook? You've been been good for six months. You've been good for six weeks. You've been good for six hours. What are we doing? If confession is nothing more than an opportunity to impress Abuna, you got it all wrong. You have it all wrong. The same way that every priest, every bishop, and even our patriarch has a father of confession, where we recognize that the purpose of confession is to come and say, I'm broken, but I'm trying. And I need His grace to reach the level where I can be transformed. In my humility, I can come before God and say, I know I have this addiction. And I know I struggle with this category of sin. But I know you won't leave me. And I know that I don't have to stay down. And I know that your arms are open. And that's the only reason I keep getting up. is because I know that you're willing to receive me. And if somebody asks, Abuna, do you have this weakness? I do. I do. And there is a freedom in being able to recognize that I do. And I don't have to hide it but I recognize that it's a form of brokenness, and I don't accept it. I fight against it. Do you guys know who St. John Clamacus is? And this is the last slide. He's the author of The Ladder of Divine Ascent, an essential spiritual read for anybody who is choosing the ascetic life. All monks have to read this before they become a monk, or at least read it while they are a monk. And it's a great, great read for those who are trying to understand the steps that are taken in order for us to acquire virtue. St. John Climacus writes and says the following on how God's love changes us. He says, everything is possible for the believer. I have watched impure souls, mad for physical love, but turning what they know of such love into a reason for penance and transferring that same capacity for love to the Lord. I have watched a master fear so as to drive themselves unsparingly toward the love of God. That is why, when talking of the chaste harlot, the Lord does not say, because she feared, but rather because she loved much. She was able to drive out love with love. Do you guys remember this passage in the Gospel of Luke? Where he's sitting with Simon, and the woman comes in, and she pours the oil on his feet, and she washes his feet with her tears, and dries them with her hair. What does the Lord say to Simon? He says, do you see this woman? I have come and you haven't even offered me water for my feet. That was the custom. Because they used to walk in sandals and usually very long distances to be able to arrive to each other. Their feet would be dirty. So they would wash their feet before entering. He says, you didn't even offer me water for my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears. And she has dried them with her hair. You didn't anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my head with fragrant oil. And now what does he say? Because she loved much, much is forgiven. This isn't an indication of condition. This was an answer to Simon who condemned her and said, if he only knew the kind of woman who touches him. But the Lord's answer to Simon was what? She is loved. Whether you like it or not, whether or not you think that she is worthy of it, Because she is forgiven, she is loved. And because she is loved, she is forgiven. You and me should have nothing standing in our way. Nothing. I don't care how long you've been struggling. I don't care how long you've been holding on to that sin that you haven't confessed because you're afraid if you'll be judged or not. And many of us have these like really crazy ideas of what Abuna is going to do. Right? And I understand. We've all heard horror stories and some of those horror stories are real. But Habibi at some points you can't carry that anymore. You're already like trying to swim through the ocean of life and it's difficult to get across and you're doing it with a 50 pound bag of bricks on your back. Why are you carrying the extra load? Get rid of it. Don't think that your sin is greater than your God. Recognize just how loved you are. And so we're going to do something now that we're leaving the session. On your way out, they're going to pass out to you the book have you seen the one I love by Pope Shenouda? Skip through it. And I want us to please respect the fact that right after this talk, we go straight into silent time, to quiet time. This is not the time to get up and stretch and talk to your neighbor. This is not the time for you to break your silence and to go have a nice walk with someone in the garden. This is the time for you to go find a quiet and beautiful place wherever you want it to be. You want to sit next to the water? Go next to the water. You want to sit next to the beautiful gardens? Do that. You want to be isolated in your room? Go ahead and do that. But for the next period of quiet time, complete silence. Do not talk to anyone. And if you need to speak, speak to Jesus. But this is an opportunity for you and me to actually reflect on what it is that we just spoke about. An opportunity for us to ask him do you truly love me the way that they say you do do you really know me the way that they say you do is your love capable of transforming me the same way that it transformed Moses the strong the same way that it completely changed the life of Mary of Egypt are you capable of looking at me with the same eyes that you looked at the Shulamite woman those are the conversations that you were invited to have during quiet time I believe the servants have prepared for you a series of questions to reflect on if you want to think about them and reflect on them by yourself and then we'll come back into workshops like we did yesterday. So please, I beg you, once we finish the announcements and the servant explain what the next steps are, please respect the quiet time. This is not the time for us to turn and speak to each other. Rather, turn to Christ. To Him be all glory now and forever. And unto to the ages of all ages. Amen. Um, stay on the screen. Also, a code outside here. As you get the book, you can scan it. There's a question. questions, um,